Hello, so nice to be here and see you all. Uh, our church has been prayed for, supported by you, and we're so excited to be here. We feel like we're at home, and you have been our family for all these years, and that's the amazing thing. No matter where you go, no matter where you live, when you get together, it's like, I don't know, it's like we Christians have always been together. Don't you feel this way? Isn't it amazing? Um, 20 years ago, when I first met Pastor Brian, he wasn't Pastor Brian in those days. He was just a student. He was working with Campus Crusade. I was a student. And um, I was just making my first steps in Christ. And uh, every bit of information about Jesus, the Bible, Christian music was precious. It still is. But in those days, we had no Christian music whatsoever. And I remember Brian brought his guitar and he played a couple of songs for me. And those were the only Christian songs I ever heard. So I was singing them away all the time for everyone. And it was just amazing. I think it was like, uh, Seek You First, The Kingdom of God, and the other one was just a short chorus. But anyway, that was like, I love these songs. Well, many years have passed, and now there are lots of songs that have been written in Russia. Um, and there are a lot of songs that I love, um, American worship songs that me and my friends translated into Russian. And I was thinking about actually having this interesting worshipful experience together, and I want to invite you to sing in Russian with me. And we're going to sing a song that you all know. Uh, it's called How Great Is Our God. It's a very popular song here in America. And um, I, I will, I will uh, make it easy for you. I'll sing most of it. you happy but uh, I'll invite you to join me to sing chorus together and let's first look at the words they'll look really weird I'll just sing it for you the, the, the chorus so that you would join in when it's time Велик наш Господь. We'll sing together. We'll sing together in Russian. It will be like a little heaven when everybody, all the nations, all the people, will be together. I mean, did you expect that at this service? A little piece of heaven. There you have it. Он в славе Пусть вся земля поет, пусть вся земля поет. В нем ярок цвет всегда. Спешит укрыться тьма от голоса его, от голоса его. Вели. Наш Господь, Твой Ты велик, Наш Господь, увидим мы велик, Велик наш Господь. Он вечности живет, Управляет Бог началом и концом, началом и концом. В трех лицах Он един, 
Отец и Дух и Сын, и Лев и Агнецон, и Лев и Агнецон, Велик наш Господь, Пойный Велик наш Господь, Увидимый Велик, Велик. Наш Господь, Велик наш Господь, Поединик наш Господь, Увидимый Велик, Велик наш Господь. Наш Господь, увидим мы велик, велик наш Господь. It is a great honor for me to be here and to be allowed to, intru- uh, to address you with the word of God. That's very humbling. I thought, what on earth could I ever teach these people that are so well taught? And so I'd like to share some things that are uh, on my heart today. As I said, uh, your church has been so supportive of everything we're doing. And we feel and believe and know that anything that God does in Russia, in Viberg, Russia, has a close connection with everything that you do here. You are our family. You are prayer supporters. You are financial supporters. I mean, you are part of our ministry, and this is so wonderful. And we love to report back to you and to write to you about the wonderful things that God is doing there. And we really, really love writing to you, and uh, usually these letters are full of joy, and, and that's who we are. I mean, we are joyful Christians. I mean, life, life in Christ is full of joy, isn't it? But even though joy always prevails and it's always with us and nothing can ever stop it, there are times of trials and, and spiritual deserts and, and tribulations and pain and suffering. And yes, these things are real and we shouldn't pretend that they're not there. And a lot of times um, we do feel very lonely, deserted, we're good for nothing. And, and the little notes that some of the people Some of you write to us, like, we are with you, we're praying for you. They mean worlds to us. And of course, the greatest thing that's really supportive and encouraging for us is the Word of God. That's the treasure we should never take for granted. When I was asked to preach here, the moment when I got a note from Pastor Brian, Brian, I was actually reading Psalm 73. And I had no question what I was going to speak about because I was struggling for some things that... Uh, the author of the psalm goes through, 
And I thought, I would love just to share my heart with uh, my dear family in, in Champaign, Illinois, and that's what I'm going to do today. But first of all, I'd like to tell you about, a little bit about the author of the psalm, because we usually think that all psalms have been written by David, which is true, the majority of them were. And yet there is a person whose name was Asaph, and um, he lived about 3,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? We still sing I mean, we, we read his psalms, we can put them to music and sing them. And he was a very wonderful, talented, inspired musician. He understood why God created music, and he wanted to praise God with all of his being. He was appointed by King David to be the leader of holy music in the Ark of the Covenant, later the temple, and he was incredibly, incredibly gifted. His job was actually to be close to God and lead people in worship, and, and he did that wonderfully well. But he also, in spite of this incredible closeness to God, he had times of struggles. And as we read Psalm 73, I'm not going to read the whole thing now, but we'll be referring to the verses from the psalm, we'll see that what he wrote there is so relevant to where we are today. And it's very international, really. It's like it doesn't matter whether we're in Russia, whether we're in America, we all can relate to some struggles that Asaph had. And... Um, as I read through Psalm 73, I saw that there are several, there are different looks on life that people might have, and there are four of them, and we're going to look at each one of these looks, how we look at life. When Asaph starts writing this psalm, the first look at life that he has, I called a frustrated look, a frustrated look, and he was frustrated because he looked at the world around him. Doesn't it frustrate you to look at the world around you? It does. And it, it, it's amazing to me. A lot of people back at home think, and that's what I thought when I was younger, that America is the, which is actually true, it's a land of opportunity, but I thought it was perfect. I thought that if you really wanted to be truly happy, all you needed to do is somehow get to the States. And the moment you step on this holy ground and kiss this holy ground, all your troubles are going to just go away. And then I flew to America in 1992 and stepped on the holy ground of New York. <laughs> and it didn't take me long to figure out how wrong I had been. And it's amazing that all of us, no matter which country we live in, we always complain and we're always unhappy about things happening around us. Russians still think that the best thing they could do is get to America. You guys know that even though this is probably the best country the world could ever offer, it's still not perfect. It's still not perfect. And you know what? There is a phrase I was afraid of saying when I was younger. I thought, I know I'll be old when I say the phrase, in my time, things were different. <laughs> and just recently, I caught myself actually saying this phrase. And I thought, oh, goodness, there we go. And then several days later, I tried to read my Bible, and I just realized I'm having a senior moment. I need these reading glasses. So that's, that's gonna, that, that was even worse. But anyway, well, the truth is, though, that things were different in my days. Things were different. And when I compare things that were happening way back 20 years ago, I can see that things are getting worse. Back 20 years ago, when the doors were open for the gospel in Russia. There was so much hope. We really thought that things were going to change for better. And our church was started then. It was started as a, as a result of my work with high school students. I used to be a high school teacher. I taught English. And in those days, there was so much confusion in Russia that basically you could preach the gospel in schools. Nobody cared about it because people were busy with other things. And I did. 
And 24 of my students in the class that I taught became Christians. Well, now, that was wonderful and exciting, but it was really scary because we had no churches then. And all of a sudden, these 24 little Christian babies are on my lap, and they go, feed us, feed us, and I had no idea how. But that was exciting because we investigated together. We investigated the truth. We were deep in the word of God. We're growing together. Now these people are leaders in my church. They used to be 16 then. Now they're in their late 30s. And it's exciting to see how God has been working in their lives. Yet if you think about Russia in general, instead of hope, there is so much hopelessness right now. Because even though 20 years ago I could read in American newspapers that Russia is opening up for the gospel, that we have this hunger for the word, no. It was just pure curiosity. Russians who had not had an opportunity to read the word of God, all of a sudden got this opportunity and they thought, hmm, great, okay, let's try the Bible. Well, it didn't work. Uh, so uh, anyway, let's go back to our search. And, and, and right now, the country has become religious but not Christian. Instead of communism, like right now, Russians are involved into Russian orthodoxy in the what I call smell. Um, basically, dead religion without meaning. And evangelical Christians are being looked down upon. We're considered to be a sect. Whenever you talk about being born again, that's like a no-no topic. And my girls who go to school, when they share Christ with their schoolmates, everybody laughs at them and, and, and says, says terrible things about them. There's horrible peer pressure. It's just, I mean, gosh, it's on every level. Kids, adults, the same. Well, I mean, I look at America 20 years ago. Actually, when I came to America 20 years ago, one of the things that shocked me and I was also teaching in schools in Westlake, Ohio, that you could not freely share the good news about Christ. Well, guess what? I was there only for three weeks, and I didn't care if they would fire me. I did anyway. It was so nice. I just loved it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even if I compare America 20 years ago to what we have today, I would say things are getting worse. And uh, there is more hopelessness that was here 20 years ago. It just does frustrate us to see the injustice and the evil all around us. And uh, if this is life, is it worth living? And the same thing happened way back then to Asaph, who looked around and he saw horrible things. He was so frustrated to look at the world. But it's interesting that he starts his psalm with a very uh, truthful statement. The first verse says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. God is good to Israel. That was the truth. No matter what was happening, God was not to blame. He was good. He was blessing Israel throughout the entire history. First, he started with Abraham, and he was blessing Israel, and he still is in so many ways. God is good. He loves this country. He loves this nation. But you know what is interesting? We could say with the same firmness that God is good to America. Despite the horrible things that have been happening here, I'm amazed and I'm in awe of God how he's blessing this country. I've traveled quite a bit and I've seen different places, but there's nothing like America. That's the only place in the world where I can totally feel free and I can enjoy spiritual blessings. I can be filled spiritually and nourished and taken, uh, taken care of. The churches in America, with all the complaints that you might have about them, are still the best. And I would say, which probably would be a scary statement really, but out of all the countries I've ever visited, America is the most Christian place in the world. In spite of all these troubles and, and, and because of the faithful remnant, God is still blessing this country beyond our imagination. Well, God is good to my church. I'm really amazed that in the middle of all this hopelessness and, and evil and, and darkness, 
the Lord raised a generation of believers that are passing the good news to other generations. And a lot of churches that were started in Russia way back in the beginning of the 90s are dead now. They're gone. But, you know, we have three generation of believers, generations of believers that have grown in our church and they continue on. And uh, when our church was started, uh, I was the oldest. I was 20. Grandpa. Uh, and the leaders of the church were 16. My parents were in their 50s, and they came to Christ. And, and it was amazing. The young generation was, was sharing the good news with the older generation. And now we have this amazing church with all generations, with different ages. And it's, it's a very, very healthy body of believers. It's wonderful. God blesses it, even though it's very hard for us to live in Russia. But that church is the reason why I'm still there. Take it away. I probably would hop on the first plane to America and be here. And you guys, God is good to us. I'm, I, I, I never thought that I deserved the right to enjoy the blessings that you have here. It's my 10th trip to the States. Everybody goes like, how do you do that? I have no money to do it. I mean, my friends, people bring us here, and we're so blessed beyond blessed. And whatever we learn here, we're taking back home and blessing the others with the knowledge, with the new revelations that we get from God through all of you. That is just amazing. God is good to us. No matter what, what happens around, no matter what we do, even, even if, if things get bad, this is a true statement. God is always good. His goodness is a given. We all know that. That's one of his major important qualities, goodness of God. And Asaph knows that. You know, it's, it's really interesting, though. We, we know it. Anyone here would say, if asked, that God is good, right? I mean, there's nobody who would doubt that or disagree with that. But, you know, there is a difference between knowing and believing. Believing is actually acting on what you know. So when trials come, do we act like God is good, or do we start grumbling, or do we start mumbling, complaining? What, what do we start doing? Once, uh, when, I, when I was younger, um, we had this uh, Campus Crusade meeting, and a friend of mine who was leading the meeting explained to us, young students the difference between knowing and believing we're sitting in a circle and he and he said there is a bomb right here and it's going to go off any minute and everybody laughed and said yeah right no 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 there is a bomb here it's going to go off in like three four minutes and everybody kept, kept laughing well if i told you there was a bomb here and it would go off you probably would if you believed it you would probably rush out of the hall immediately but i'm telling you there is a bomb here why are you sitting you don't believe me so see, there is, there is a close connection between what you believe in and what you do. We're not saved by works, but then after we are saved, the works and the fruit of the Spirit, the result of our faith proves that we truly do believe, and that's important. God is good. We know the right answers, but do we act on that? We know the right answers since childhood, but they only mess us up. Like in that story about a pastor who once came to visit a Sunday school and he wanted to ask kids a question as, a, as, a, as an icebreaker. And he said, okay, kids, who is this? It's, it's an animal. It's a little animal. He has red fur and it lives in a tree. Total silence in the class. The pastor is surprised. Isn't it obvious, he thinks. Okay, kids, it has this, you know, fluffy, cute tail. It, it really likes nuts and, and acorns. Do you get it? Silence. Well, it jumps from tree to tree. And one kid finally has courage to sheepishly raise his hand. And he goes, Pastor, I know that the right answer is Jesus, but it awfully resembles a squirrel. (laughs) 
I mean, the right answers. Gosh, we, we, we can give them left and right. Well, Asaph knows the right answer, yet his eyes look at the world, and it frustrates the very life out of him. Look at this. Let's, let's look at verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. In spite of God's goodness that I knew about, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Interesting, isn't it? He was envious of those who didn't love God, envious of people who were against God. He, he, he continues on. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to men. They're not plagued by human ills. I mean, they just have it all together. They enjoy a great life. And when we look at things that are happening around us today, sometimes we see that it's much easier to live without God. Less trouble, really. That will be shocking for you to hear, but in Russia... It's customary for people to steal at work. I mean, my brother-in-law worked in a telephone store, and his salary was incredibly, miserably small. It was about $300 a month. You know why? Because the employer knew that people steal anyway, and that's what the others did. They stole up to $700 a month, so instead of the salary that was supposed to be $300, they carried home 1000 isn't it great? Well, now, here's my brother-in-law, an honest Christian man who looks at all this, and he's like, I'm not stealing. I mean, I'm worshiping the Lord. I glorify the Lord with every thought and every action. And he leads a miserable life. I mean, he cannot make money because he's, not, he's supposed to, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to uh, subject him, himself to these kind of things. He, he just, he's a different person. Gosh, how do you live like that? I mean, it's easier not to have all these values. Just let them go out of the wind. Let me just start stealing. Well, it's hard. I don't want to do that. I want to glorify the Lord. Well, in the middle of everything that's happening, we still should have the right focus. We should still remember that God is good. You know, Peter, remember Apostle Peter, when um, he was walking in waters to Jesus, he was focused on Jesus, and he could walk on waters. The moment he looked at the waves around him, he saw the world, he saw all the scary things that were happening around him, he started to drown. And that's what happens to us. And that's what started to happen to Asaph. He started to see the wickedness of the world, and he imagined like there was no God. There was no retribution. There was no right and wrong. It was scary. The town where I live is run by mafia. Everybody knows that. We know the godfather of the mafia, and we can do nothing about it. You cannot start a business in town unless you pay a cut to the mafia people. In my church, I have a number of incredible men that are so talented. They're talented musicians, photographers, carpenters. I mean, you name it. They can't make ends meet because, first of all, they don't steal at work. Second, they don't want to give a cut to mafia. It would be so much easier to do that, and yet they prefer to go the right way, to walk the ways of Christ. But the mafia, they're not in trouble like other men, says SF. They're not, they're, neither are they plagued like other men, and they seem to be invincible. Nothing bad happens to them. And not only that, 
but you know, Asaph even thinks that probably God doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't care. Because these people say, verse 11, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Well, there's no answer. The Most High doesn't seem to care. They keep on carrying on. Why? That's the question many people ask today. And they start doubting God. They doubt that God is good. At least in movies where things are bad, there are always happy endings most of the time. Well, life is not a movie, really. Randy Elkhorn, one of my favorite Christian writers, in one of his books, actually that's called If God is Good, he writes this, evil and suffering have a way of exposing our inadequate theology. When affliction comes, a weak or nominal Christian often discovers that his faith doesn't account for it or operate uh, or prepare him for it. His faith has been in a church, denomination, or family tradition, or in his own religious ideas, but not in Christ. As he faces evil and suffering, he may in fact lose his faith, faith, but that is actually a good thing. Any faith that leaves us unprepared for suffering is a false faith that deserves to be abandoned. Genuine faith will be tested. False faith will be lost. The sooner, the better. Now, the second look that Asaph has is a disappointed look. He looks at himself. He looks at himself, and all of a sudden, in the psalm, the third personal plural pronoun, they, is changed to one person, sing- person singular, first person singular, me. All of a sudden, we read another thing. The, 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 the psalmist starts having a pity party for himself. And by the way, this is a natural result of us looking at the world and seeing all the terrible things and kind of not looking at the world through, the God, through God's view. And you know what? We, we Christians, in so many ways, sometimes look at God like it's some kind of good moral idea, not like he's a powerful, sovereign creator. And God is so distant. He's so powerless. And in Russia and in America, we have this problem, really. And, uh, you know, in, in Russia, there was this movie called Sunday Dad. It's about a divorced couple, and the dad could only see his kids on a Sunday. And sometimes God for us is a, is a Sunday dad. We come to see him on Sunday, and then we leave church, and we don't even think about him through the week. Um, but it's interesting. This is, the, this is the expression of this attitude. We, we may not say that, but we feel it in, inside sometimes. Look at this. Verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Look at me. My life is a mess. My life is a wreck. There is no God. Why did I even start to follow him? I get nothing out of it. When my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, Julia, a wonderful, wonderful person. She's 27 now. It's a beautiful young lady. Um, she was eight. She accepted Jesus when she was eight years of age. And it was exciting. It was exciting. I mean, she truly, truly came to Christ, never doubted him ever since. But her life was miserable. You know why? Because in Russia, it was not very popular to, to be an evangelical Christian. If you become an evangelical Christian, and if you do not follow the Russian Orthodox tradition, you consider to be a traitor of your motherland. That's the national big idea. You're supposed to be Russian Orthodox. Everybody who is not is a traitor. You traded, you betrayed your roots. And this little traitor comes to school. She's eight years of age. And would you believe it? She was put in front of the classroom and laughed at by the teachers. And the teachers were saying things like, 
they, they were saying to the kids, don't have anything to do with her. She belongs to a dangerous sect. And she was just an evangelical believer in a non-denominational church with some kind of Baptist theology, really. But um, anyway, she didn't even have friends until she hit the age of 14. No friends whatsoever because they were told not to associate with her. No friends her own age. Well, when she was 14, several girls from class came up to her and said, you have been standing your ground for this God of yours, and that's so amazing. We want to know him. I mean, what is this God that you suffered for him so long? But, I mean, think about it. God knew that he would lead several people to Christ through this perseverance, but was it difficult for her to be alone and not have any friends for quite a while? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. She could have said, why did I even start following Christ? She never did, never faltered, never doubted. You know, I think Americans have a similar kind of problem that Asaph describes with a little different twist. You know, a lot of times I notice that American people feel like, you know, what's the point of striving for holiness and righteousness? You know, if if in my country the world is really disgusting, I mean, that's why I really like the fact that my girls are growing up there because when they will have to make a choice between good and bad, it will be so easy. It's so much easier in Russia because, I mean, you look at the church and relationships there are different. Families are different. I mean, everything is different and the world is just ugly. Well, in America, it's beautiful. There's hardly sometimes any distinction between the church and the world. Did you know that even before I became a Christian, I learned family values from Hollywood movies. And I mean good family Hollywood movies, not the kind of things that you watch today. I mean, that, that sounds weird to you, right? But yeah, I mean, I didn't have any role models except for my parents, but it's like, how do you treat your wife, right? How do you raise your children? I mean, there's not, there are a lot of nice Hollywood movies in the past that we could learn that from. And the world holds on to some good values because America was founded on Christian principles. And so a lot of times Americans would just say, well, I mean, why give my life to the cause of Christ? And then we just have the Sunday dad here. Sin is beautiful. It comes here in the beautiful wrapping paper. And so the person who wants to give his entire life to God is often tempted to ask, what's the point? What's the difference? You know, and... um, and uh, what's the point of devoting my life to Christ and his work? If, uh, that, that's what I ask myself. If people come to Christ so slowly and we've been laboring for 20 years and we only have, well, about 200 people in the church and most of the people move out of Viberg and go to St. Petersburg and they never even stay and the church grows very slowly. And I remember when I asked God all these questions, he asked me a question. He said, what is the purpose of your life? I mean, success? I, I know that Americans are crazy about success. You have to be. I mean, we're Americans. We're supposed to be successful, right? Um, but God really re- revealed to me that it's not success he called me to, but obedience and worship. Everything else flows out of it. You know, you worship, the, why do you evangelize? I mean, he didn't call us to evangelism in the first place, to worship him. And because you worship him, you understand him better. You want to share the news about him with everybody. There's, if there's no worship, there's no evangelism. There's nothing, really. And, uh, you know, when we look at ourselves and start feeling sorry about ourselves because things don't go our way, we're just really just spitting in God's face. Think about it. What do we get out of it? What did Paul receive when he gave up it all for the server, for, to serve Christ? His education, his privileges, everything at all. And he was just 
cast out of everywhere because they believed in Jesus. What did Jesus receive for all the wonderful things he gave to the people, for all the beautiful things, for, for all the love he shared with them? He was crucified. What do we expect? Well, the good thing is that it goes on. The psalm goes on. And uh, the psalmist says, Asaph says, if I had said I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He says, if I, if I keep thinking this way, all of a sudden he's hit with this understanding, with the truth, that if I keep say, saying things like that, I'll just betray the children of God. I will be a terrible example for those who follow me. I am placed in this position of leadership and I should better change my look, not look at the world, not look at myself. There are other important things I, I need to look at. And he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was, it was oppressive to me. It was, it was difficult, it was painful. Nevertheless, nevertheless, next look that he has is a wise look, wise look. He continues on. He actually sees the outcome of the wicked people's life. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. That's the thing. You know, the wise look is when we look at the unseen. We, we, we were driving a lot while we came to America. After we came to America, we'll be driving all the way down to the East Coast and down to Florida. And when you drive, you see the horizon. But God sees beyond it. When we walk down the path of our life, we see the horizon. We have no idea what's beyond it. But God sees the unseen. God sees the future. God sees the outcome. He sees the final result. And that's what we need to strive for and allow him to see through us. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on this world that is prosperous, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. It's going to go away. It's going to be blown away very soon. But what is unseen is eternal. And bottom line is the things that we do not see, feel, or touch are more real than the things that are right here. I, I had a guy I met once during you know, evangelism outreach, and I remember he just, you know, had it all together. Money, health, everything. I mean, at least he tried to seem this way. After talking to him for two hours, I just realized his, his life was a wreck. He was about to divorce his wife. He was on drugs. He knew he would die because it was on heroin. And I'm like, gosh. And he tried to really put a nice face up. All of a sudden, the unseen comes out. He needs the Savior. So we probably could envy him judging the external things. But what did he have inside? Nothing. Nothing. You know, the, the problem is not God who is not good. The problem is our understanding. The London Times once asked various writers for essays on the topic, what is wrong with the world? A famous writer, Gilbert Chesterton, contributed something to that, and his contribution was the shortest essay in history. That's what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, Chesterton. That's it. It's not God. It's me who chose to sin in the first place. Us, people, it's not God. It's my lack of knowledge, wisdom, and trust in him. We need to replace the lies we often believe in with the truth. That, that's what growth is all about. You know, we, we, the reason we don't grow sometimes is because we believe in a lie. Like, you know, how many times do we feel like no one loves me? Well, God says, I love you. I mean, you see where the lies come from? I cannot do it. I cannot make it. Well, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You know, we need to throw away the lies and accept the truth and live it out. 
And you know, that's exactly what happens to Asaph. Look at verse 17. He says, that was so terrible to me, that was so oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Them. Asaph stops talking about them. He's dealing with himself. It's like, that's my problem. I needed to go into the sanctuary of God. There was a time many years ago when I went to the beautiful city of York in Great Britain, and everybody, all of my friends, when I went there, was saying, oh, you will really love the York Minster. You have to see that beautiful stained glass window there. It's just amazing. And I went there, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was on the outside of the building, and I look at this glass. I'm like, whatever, you know, no big deal. But you know what happened when I, what happened when I came inside, and the sun was shining, and it was just gorgeous. And that struck me. It was then when I just realized, in order to understand the things of Christ, you've got to be an insider. You've got to come in. There's so many things that we try to understand. It's like, okay, explain that to me. Then maybe I'll accept Jesus. I mean, you will not understand 99% of the wonderful things that God has in store for you unless you come in. Only then you will see the truth as it is. Only and only then. And, you know, Asaph all of a sudden sees that, that God is in control of life. Verse 18, nobody's going to escape his judgment, and even we Christians will be judged according to our works, not according to whether we'll be saved or not. We are saved, but yes, there'll be rewards and stuff, and we know that. And then what is happening, you know what, it's, it's really interesting. There are seven, over 700 promises in the Bible for believers, and only one for non-believers, no matter how wealthy they are, hell. People don't like that idea, but hell is separation from God. You don't want to believe in God, you're separated from him. You are in hell, whether you believe it in, in it or not. It's an objective thing. And when Asaph understands all this, his outlook on life changes completely. He's got an excited look, an excited look. And he says very interesting things. Look at this. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Basically, I was, th I was not thinking. I was not wise. By the way, you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. You know, we can know a lot of things, but, I mean, education does make us wise. I mean, it's good to have an education, but if it stays in your head and doesn't go to your heart and then into your hands, there's no use in it, really. And he becomes wise. He starts applying the truth. And uh, you know what is amazing? When, when he wrote the psalm, he didn't know much about Christ or didn't know anything about Christ, really. But, I mean, the things that he's saying, it's just, it's just describing my Jesus that I know and love. You know? Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. I'm always with you, not because I strive to be there, but because you will never let me go. And Jesus says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. You know, you guide me with your counsel. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. It's to him that we need to go for advice. Where do we go for advice when troubles strike? To our friends, to our family? I mean, who's the first one we talk to? Isn't it a shame that maybe Jesus is our last straw? That is a shame. And you know what? It's, it's, it's really something that I learned in, a, in my Christian walk, that when the Lord saves us from trials and troubles, he, he doesn't really save us from the fire, there will be testing. We all will be tested one way or the other. He saves us out of the fire. It may be really hot, but the Lord is going to save you just like he saved 
the three young men in the book of Daniel. And I love what Asaph says later. He says, eventually, I mean, that's the, that's the epitome of joy. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. All of this stuff that they have, I don't really need to be truly joyful, to be truly fulfilled, to be truly happy. Well, the question is, do we see life like that? Or do we need another toy to make ourselves happy? He's got more than I. It's a universal thing. You know, Russians are like that, but in America, in America, everything is bigger. You know, when I first came to America, it felt like I came to the country of giants. I mean, Russian cars seem to be toy cars compared to the huge vehicles you guys, you guys drive. These wide roads, it's like, what we drive, it's like the little paths, and everything is huge in America. Gosh, you go to Costco, Sam's Club, everything is big. <laughs> Americans love it big. Everything is bigger, better, huger. And, uh, I mean, gosh, my, my neighbor has a bigger house than I. I'll show him. I'll have more Christmas lights than mine. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I want you to know that life is not really about ourselves. Like somebody said, I really like it, what someone said about a church. He said, what makes a church great is not its sitting capacity, it's its sending capacity. And, and the same thing, what makes our life great is not the absence of trouble, but our clinging to God, how close we are walking with him. There's another book in the Bible that's very similar to Psalm 73. It's the book of Habakkuk. And I'll read what Habakkuk says. Actually, that was a prophet that saw many, many evil things happening around him. I'm not going to go into that, but he was complaining. He's actually, he actually he had an interview with God. He kept asking the questions. God gave him answers. He didn't like the answers. But eventually, God brought him to the point when Habakkuk was able to say, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pan and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Isn't that what we want in our lives? Isn't that true joy? And dear brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you and encourage you to never give up because you Americans have been so blessed. And you know what I admire about American nation? It's the most giving, the most... I'm not trying to butter up here, okay? <laughs> That's from the bottom of my heart. The most spiritual nation I've ever seen I mean, you people care about what happens on the other side of the world. I mean, you, you are the most mission, missionary-sending nation in the world. And, and, and sometimes you don't see any results or feel like, you know, the, the, we could do prosper, so why do we do what we do? I'm telling you, I'm not really thankful to my country for anything it ever did for me because it didn't. It did a lot of things to me. It killed my grandfather's family because they were Jewish. It persecuted my dad. He had lots of problems with KGB. My country tried to make sure I never hear the gospel, but I did nevertheless. And after I became a Christian, these were American Christians that invo got involved in my life and poured into it so generously. And some of them don't even know where I am right now, but I'm so thankful I'm what I am because of the way God used them. And Brian is just one of those people. Um, just don't give up because the blessings that you are 
now to so many people are precious. And maybe you can feel like, you know, the wicked do it better than us. I mean, they do much better than us. Well, maybe externally, but really the, the, the fruit of your labor, of your prayers, of the things that you are doing are eternal, and you should look at those things that are unseen, which one day we will see face to face. We'll see the, the incredible fruit of all of our work for Christ. Just don't ever give up, and I hope you won't. Thank you for letting me share this with you. I mean, who am I to do that, really? So it's, it's a great, humbling, honorable thing to be here in front of you. I know that you've been so well taught. I just wanted to share a little bit of my heart with you, and I'm very thankful that you allowed me to do that. May God bless you. Thank you.